0: Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. I'm Rosie Candethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University in Atlanta.
1: I am the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University in Ohio. Our magnificent co-host Tim McNinch is off this week, which leaves Rosie and me to wreak havoc in the studio. So, (laughs) yes! What do you say, Rosie? (laughs) You are up on the mic, and the first reading this week looks like it's from, surprise, surprise, Isaiah. Isaiah number nine, to be exact. So what have you got for us? Yeah,
0: I'm ready to rock, Rachel. We're in the third Sunday of Epiphany, January 22nd, 2023, and our first reading on this blessed Sunday is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 4. Attentive listeners will also note that this week's gospel reading in the Revised Common Lectionary is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 23. And Matthew appears to clearly be a first reading fan. Mm -hmm. Matthew basically begins by tearing a page out from the scroll of Isaiah 9. So listeners, (laughs) you're really going to do yourself some favors by taking time with the first reading this week. Mm. The RCL explicitly encourages preachers to take up the first reading because Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 through 16 paraphrases from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 2.
1: That's right, listeners. You are getting a two for one out of this episode. You're welcome.
0: I don't always get to relate the first reading directly to the gospel of the week. So I kind of lucked out this week. (laughs) Preachers that were already focusing on the gospel reading will want to know what exactly is going on with this citation from Isaiah nine. And what is first Isaiah, a prophet who likely lived and preached in the eighth century BCE doing here in Matthew chapter four, 12 through 16, Mm. a text that was probably written almost a thousand years later in the first century CE. Hmm. And after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Mm. And I'm glad you asked, dear listener, cuz you came to the right place. There's a lot going on here yeah. and we at first reading are here to hard here to help. That's right.
1: <laughs> well, let's hear it. What's the help, Rosie?
0: So, instead of starting out with the gospel reading and going backwards, I want to put our first reading from Isaiah front and center yes. to help us see What made this text attractive and persuasive to the largely Jewish audience for whom the Gospel of Matthew was originally written?
1: Yes, friends, we are here to help us all avoid eisegesis, which is uh, the tendency to read something into the text that wasn't actually in the text, but we see it because of our own lives. And the tendency that we have to do as Christians, as we've talked about for the past few weeks, is I see Jesus in every Hebrew Bible text, no matter what the historical context
0: Right. No, I am down with that, right? To try to avoid that uh, problematic tendency of, you know, reading Jesus back into every Old Testament passage. Let's start back into the mystery of this Isaiah Oracle, Mm -hmm. which had multiple possible interpretations and applications over its long thousand year life, well before the Jesus movement and Christian interpreters put their own spin on it. Mm -hmm. So very quickly, by way of background, First, Isaiah was active in Jerusalem during the 8th century BCE, and a couple of his main preaching points were, one, God is great, powerful, and reigning over the whole world from his seat, Jerusalem. Hmm. And two, that the Davidic monarchy was established by God for all time and will reign forever from Jerusalem. You guessed it, Jerusalem. Hmm. So, these two central features of 1st Isaiah's preaching allowed him to deal with the historical and political realities of his day, which were dominated by the threat of Assyria, the dominant world power of the eighth century. Hmm. Now, because 1st Isaiah believed so firmly in God and in Jerusalem and the eternal quality of David's dynasty, he urged Judah not to fixate on the political and military power of Assyria but to believe instead that God was at the helm. Hmm. And Assyria had already invaded and conquered the Northern Kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE, and also had laid siege to Jerusalem and nearly captured the Southern Kingdom of Judah in 701 BCE. It's against this background that will help us to fill out the picture that Isaiah 9 begins with. So just a note, right? The chapter breaks and versification are different in the Hebrew, but I'm gonna stick with the English NRSB for the sake of clarity here. So Isaiah 9 begins with this reference to the brutal Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. So listen up. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 reads, in the former time, he brought into contempt, in the Hebrew, this is hekal, so the hifl of the verb kalal, Mm. which is to make small. Mm -hmm. So in the former time, he brought, he made them small, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Mm. Now, what is the prophet talking about here? So what he's doing is he is envisioning the tribal regions of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north, the coastal region south of Mount Carmel by the sea, and the land east of the Galilee beyond the Jordan. All of these areas had been devastated by the invading Assyrian armies. Mm. They had been conquered and their peoples were scattered. Mm. First Isaiah is... Against all reason, Mm. preaching to those people, that land that you saw destroyed will be recovered, and there will be again a unified nation, northern and southern kingdoms joined together once again under God's Davidic king. Mm. First, Isaiah firmly believed this glorious reign was going to happen imminently, and most likely he was imagining King Hezekiah of the line of David, who was Judas' king from 715 to 687 BCE, when he preached. So those words that are in this passage for unto us, a child is born, a son is given a wonderful counselor, a Prince of peace. This is probably who Isaiah hadn't. Right. No, no,
1: no. Right.
0: (laughs) Don't listen to Rachel. (laughs) Probably King Hezekiah probably. Uh, But when we hear, right. So the words that Isaiah speaks is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who lived in a land of deep darkness in the Hebrew, that is a compound word. So Zalmaveth, Mm. death shadow, literally death shadows, right? So on them, a light has shined. And if you're seeing the backdrop of what this land looked like, a besieged land, burning heaps of ash, Mm. lines of refugees, a place that's haunted by the dead. That is the situation Isaiah is preaching into. In the midst of that, of that, deathscape of those shadows, Isaiah draws upon language of light. So twice in verse Mm. two, and then even more outrageously, Isaiah talks about joy and happiness. The Hebrew word for rejoicing simcha is repeated three times in verse three. (laughs) Why? Because in verse four, right? So now listen again with the backdrop of war, right? So he says for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken as in the day Hmm. of Midian. You get there, this gritty picture of why there's a possibility of light and joy in Isaiah's imagination. Midian had oppressed Israel in days long past, in the days of the judges. So Isaiah of Jerusalem is himself remembering, recalling for his audiences an even earlier tradition of Israel's military victory against a crushing foe reported in the books of of, of Judges. So chapters six through eight describe this Mm -hmm. um, turnaround where Midian gets defeated. Mm. Now, the Revised Common lectionary cuts off the next verse from the oracle, but it helps make my case that Isaiah 9 is a fierce cry of hope in the midst of absolute war devastation. Mm. And that's not some pretty language about light dawning in darkness. Mm. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 reads, For the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments that were rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for fire. Mm. If soldiers' boots and blood-soaked clothing burning in fire doesn't paint the picture, I don't know what will. Oh, man.
1: I just, I mean, I think this line, you know, is like worth the price of admission, so to say. It's a fierce cry of hope in the midst of death shadows. I mean, like, wow, y'all just take that and, and preach it and quote Rosie Canathil from that because that's amazing. <laughs> now- Okay, I'm here for all of this, but you did also mention it relates somehow to the gospel reading. So so what do you see there? Why do you think Matthew chose the quote from Isaiah 9? Right, yeah. So I did promise to tie in, <laughs> but
0: I got carried away with Isaiah 9. Let's go back, right? And let's take a look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and what I hope will lead us now towards some potential preaching points, okay, right? So yeah. now the RCL, it cuts off verse 12 of Matthew 4, and I'm really not sure why, because it offers some important context for Jesus's actions in the next verses, right? So Matthew tells his audience in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Mm. Well, that's important, right? So we'll learn later in Matthew's account that John the Baptist's imprisonment will lead to his execution. And practically speaking, Jesus is aware of the threat to himself. And rather than fighting, Jesus withdraws. And in the Greek, that's anachreo. And Where does he withdraw? He goes north to Galilee, which is where he grew up. So Matthew uses this geographical withdrawal to signal the fact that Jesus's rule is not an aggressive, violent overthrow of the powers that be, but a more humble approach. So Jesus withdraws to avoid a violent confrontation. The RCL starts the reading with verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Now, the next text is bracketed off to signal that loose quotation from our first reading in Isaiah 9. Traditionally, Nazareth was in the territory of the tribe of Zebulun Mm. and Capernaum was in Naphtali. Both were in Galilee and in the territory ruled by Herod Antipas. Now, you've got to remember that the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were long ago dispersed in the Assyrian conquest of the Northern Empire of Israel back in the 8th century BC. So this reference to Isaiah 9 and to this region belonging to these tribes goes way, way back to a distant cultural memory. Galilee, like much of Palestine in this era, was a mix of Gentile and Jewish cultures. And it seems clear, however, that at the time that Matthew was writing, Galilee was considered a primarily Gentile area. So Matthew draws from Isaiah 9, not only for its connection to a messianic son of David foretold, but also for its expression of Jesus's turn toward the Gentiles and the backwaters of Galilee, something that wasn't really part of the general trend in messianic expectations. The use of Isaiah 9 here helps justify Galilee as the unlikely focus of Jesus's ministry which tells of a great future reversal when the darkness of the Galilean region would be dispersed by the light of a new age and the reign of an ideal Davidic king Mm. now here in Jesus. Now, it's an extraordinary creative uh, appropriation of the 8th century BC oracle in Isaiah 9 for Matthew to now apply it to Jesus Mm. and to the church's focus on non-Jewish populations as something that was foretold all the way back a thousand years earlier.
1: Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. So you're saying Matthew is using Isaiah 9 as like scriptural justification for his broader theology, that Jesus's turn toward Galilee was foretold. And it signifies God's messianic commitment through Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles. If you're coming back from like the week before, it's the to the peoples far away, to the Eyim, to the islands, to the coastlands, to the light for the world. So Galilee... Much more than just a word that we kind of read past, in this text, has a symbolic theological role for being a heavily Gentilic area and as the center of Jesus's ministry. That is
0: way better than I said it. Yes, (laughs) that's exactly it, right? So Matthew saw the prophecies of Isaiah 9 as being realized in the history of the early church. Mm. And this is what leads me to a couple of preaching points. Now, I only touched on the first few verses of the gospel as it cites Isaiah 9, but the gospel reading goes on and it includes the calling of two pairs of brothers who are fishermen working the Sea of Galilee. So that's Peter and Andrew, and then also John and James, the sons of Zebedee. While Isaiah 9 has a specific historical context and meaning appropriate to an 8th century BCE Jewish audience reeling from the Assyrian invasion and conquest of the north, Matthew's audience takes renewed inspiration from this scripture lifting it from the past and adapting it to see God active in their day and age, now under Roman rule, of course. But in the 8th century and the 1st century CE, the hope for a savior, the expectation of a savior, a deliverer, could not have prepared them for Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, he still remained a surprise. But looking back, Matthew says, hey, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised with Jesus. Look what's here in Isaiah. Matthew merges the past and the present together into one fulsome story. And preachers, you might take a cue from Matthew. Mm. By allowing the traditions of the past to speak into the present, we recognize God's salvific acts in our midst. Mm. The thinnest of veils separates us from history. Mm. And perhaps we might allow that illuminating light of Isaiah 9 and Matthew chapter 4 to reveal God's work, not only then, but also in our lives today. In the midst of what we might name as oppressions and unmet expectations, within all of that, God continues to call us just mm. as he called Peter and Andrew and John and James away from a particular life that they thought they mm. knew toward a new life
1: of trust and discipleship. Mm, that's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. And again, the fact that we're still in January, we're still in a new year, like makes, I think, these themes that you're drawing out, that Matthew was drawing out, really So appropriate. What about pitfalls? I suppose there's just the warning that
0: Matthew takes a text with a thousand year history of interpretation (laughs) and now draws it into his account of Christ for justification. Now, Matthew's making an argument, and it's important for us to just recognize that what Matthew's doing is arguing for his audiences and helping them to appreciate what he does now for his largely Jewish audience requires first acknowledging that there were multiple interpretations available to this text. The mystery and beauty of Isaiah 9's proclamation of a messianic hope continued to inspire generations, right? So it was alive among the people. And my hope is that Christians might appreciate the rich tradition of interpretation that Matthew accesses here for the benefit of his own audiences. Now, whenever I consider Matthew's brand of exegesis... I like to remember what he records in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. And that verse reads, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Right? Matthew... That's what Matthew does. Matthew very much embodies this mastery of treasures, both old and new in his use of the traditions. Preachers do the same thing. Professors do the same thing. All of us that handle the sacred word are doing that. We are trying Mm -hmm. to master treasures, both old and new, so that we're able to show these gems, you know, and and continue to see our lives reflected there, Mm. right? So, I mean, that is what Matthew is doing. And I think that's exactly how preachers can take a cue from
1: how Matthew does what he does i love that well especially if you just run with that idea of gem when you look into a gem you see refracted you see multiple interpretations you see light bending like you know to be a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven to to sort of take up that mantle dear preachers and pull out gems in which people see themselves and god and god's people and the world refracted in new ways that's just awesome Oh, yeah, that's a perfect place to end. Thank you, Rosie. That was fantastic. My pleasure. We hope that this has been a helpful conversation for you, too, dear listeners. You can find back episodes of the podcast on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. While you're there, check out our snazzy merch or make a donation to support the podcast with our very friendly donate button. We really appreciate your support to help us keep this resource going. While you're at it, we'd love to hear from you. How are you using the podcast? What are you finding helpful? What would you change? You can interact with us on our Facebook page or send an email to firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Reverend
0: Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Canipal. Thanks for listening and have a great week.